Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast who has spent years listening to countless cases. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into true crime after being recommended a case on a YouTube channel. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this. So if you decided to start listening in episode five, this is the part of the episode where we update each other on our lives and include you guys. Recently in my life, I mentioned last week that we were moving. So the move is officially done. It's been a long week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Moving is always so stressful. So I'm sure you're exhausted from the week. Yeah. The weekend's been really nice to kind of recover a little bit, unbox things and Mm -hmm. set things up. And we have a, I have a nice new little podcast set up. So that's kind of fun, but yeah. Yeah, we're we're enjoying it and looking forward to spending at least the next year here. Yeah. And then oh where I live, it's been like minus 40 for the past two weeks. <gasps> that cold? Yes. Ouch. That hurts. Every day I leave work and pray that my car starts. Yeah, <laughs> the that's battery so true. hasn't died. Yeah. It is just been ridiculous. And this week we're getting a Chinook, so it should get hot. And the weather apparently is already climbing tonight. Shouldn't be above zero. So wow, from minus 40 to above zero. Yeah. Now welcome to Alberta. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, on my end, I'm in Ontario. So every day is back to being Groundhog Day since we're back in a pretty strict lockdown. So I stay in my house. I work from home. So I don't really leave. So Are you not much. Crazy? Yeah. So I'm going pretty crazy. But you know what? I got a crazy little chihuahua now named Zoe. So she keeps me pretty occupied. So other than that, there's really nothing. (laughs) Thank God for fur babies. Exactly. Thank God for fur babies. I really appreciate them. Last week, we had kind of questions revolving around bail in Canada, so I did a bit of research. So this is from a Government of Canada website. It says, if an accused person is taken into custody and held until he or she appears in court, a bail hearing must be held within 24 hours or as soon as possible. The court decides whether to detain the accused person before the case is dealt with in court. So this is kind of what happens during a bail hearing. The Crown Prosecutor summarizes the nature of the offense, the evidence against the accused, and the factors that will assist the court in deciding if the accused should be held in custody or released until the trial. In some places, the police may represent the Crown Prosecutor at bail hearings. Then the court must take into account any evidence about the need to ensure the victim or witness's safety. This can include the seriousness of the charge or whether it involved violence. The accused will then either be kept in jail until the case is in court or released. So it seems like basically bail is figured out throughout a bail hearing, and that probably includes how much bail will be set at as well. Yeah. That makes sense. I just wonder, like, 
because evidence might take some time to gather, I wonder how that affects the bail hearing. If it's also based on the evidence that they do have, I'm right. sure some trials are different because of the evidence that they have at that moment. Um, right. We talked about that in a couple episodes ago, I think, like yeah. uh, making sure they have enough evidence. Right. Exactly. As well. So that prob- I mean, that comes into play for a lot of different things, but that also probably comes into play here. Right. Yeah. But that explains it really well. So that's good. Yeah, we all know now. Before we get into this week's cases, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating, please. It really helps. So this week, we're doing something a little bit different. This is a series that we are going to continue to do throughout the future. We are covering cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. In this episode, we will cover three different cases out of Alberta. I think it's important to say that we are in no ways expert on this subject. I do do a lot of research when covering cases on this show, but we might and probably will make some mistakes. Just like we said last week we welcome any feedback criticism and hope to continue to grow and learn as allies we just want to use this platform to tell stories of those we feel are not getting the attention they should be and i hope everyone is well aware but the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in canada is a huge problem Mm -hmm. so we're going to do our part in trying to cover and bring light to some of these cases the following information is from the native women's association of canada it is from their fact sheet violence against aboriginal women so according to statistics canada in 2004 a general survey. Aboriginal women experience much higher rates of violence than non-Aboriginal women. Statistics Canada also reported the following findings. Aboriginal women 15 years of age and older are 3.5 times more likely to experience violence than non-Aboriginal women. Rates of spousal assault against Aboriginal women are more than three times higher than those against non-Aboriginal women. Nearly one quarter of Aboriginal women experienced some form of spousal violence in the five years the study was conducted. Statistics Canada reported that Aboriginal women are more likely to experience more severe and potentially life-threatening forms of family violence than non-Aboriginal women. This next bit of information is from the RCMP's Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women, a National Operations Overview, published in 2014. Police reported incidents of Aboriginal females, homicides, and unresolved missing Aboriginal female investigations in this review, a total of 1,181. The number includes 1,017 Aboriginal female homicide victims between 1980 and 2012, and 164 Aboriginal women currently considered missing. It's important to mention that these statistics are not necessarily accurate. Many Indigenous communities believe that the numbers of missing and murdered are much higher than reported. Many of these cases go unsolved, and we hope to do our part to share these stories and encourage anyone with any information to come forward. I think those statistics really help put into perspective, especially saying that there's most likely higher cases than what's reported. It's kind of hard to take in knowing that um, it's not being reported or in the media as it should be. It's a a lot. Like I, I... You know, I've written papers on this when I was in university, mm-hmm. this genocide. And when I was looking up cases for this episode, I was overwhelmed with the amount of cases I could have picked from. Yeah. Overwhelmed. Like mm-hmm. it was a lot. And we talked about this a bit off air, but it really really affected me this week I think like I had to like take a break on my regular true crime podcast and just you know listen to something funny or Mm. just you know some comedy podcast or something else because it's just it's overwhelming and that's why we're making this a series because we Mm -hmm. don't think just one episode is is enough we're going to cover this throughout however long we're we keep doing this yeah the information itself is overwhelming but I think 
Also, the fact that many of the cases go unsolved also just adds an element that's really uneasy. So yeah, hopefully we can, you know, cover these topics, like you said, to to shed some light on it. On that note, here are some sources for this case. I use some information from the Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women and Girls. They're an association. They often go by NWAC, uh, the Government of Canada website related to criminal justice. All cases are covered by CBC. They do a pretty good coverage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I also got an article from a website called Stories Unsolved, some information from the Edmonton Police, a Vice article by Jane Durster, an article from Justice for Native Women, and that's all. The first case we're covering is the case of Shelley Dene. It's D-E-N-E, and I hope I'm saying that right, uh, but we'll we'll just refer to her as Shelley from now on. So Shelley was born in 1988. She was a member of Alberta's Fort McKay First Nation. She also had strong connections to the Mikisu Cree Nation of Northeastern Alberta and the Northwest Territories. In 2013, Shelley was 25 years old and a mother to one son. At the time, her and her son lived in Edmonton. In the summer of 2013, Shelley's grandmother had asked her to watch her house because she was going on vacation to Kelowna, BC. When her grandmother got home a few weeks later, it looked like Shelley had packed all of her stuff and left. I'm not sure if Shelly lived with her grandma or if she had just moved some stuff in while she was house sitting, mm-hmm. but it was very obvious that her stuff was gone. Okay. Around this time, Candace, Shelly's sister, is texting her, you know, checking in on family members. And then there's a quote here. So in this article from CBC, Candace, Shelly's sister, is um, talking a lot. She's the one who's being interviewed and talking about her sister. So Maria, I'll let you read the quote from Candace. It's when I asked her if she was okay over text. She said no, and that was the last thing she's ever said to me. So we started this case in July, and now we're in November. So it's November 8th, 2013, and Shelly's cell phone was disconnected. And this is when Candace starts to panic a little bit, and she reports her sister missing to the Edmonton Police Service. Okay, so from July to November... They kind of just figured that she was on her own, you know, doing her own thing. And then once her phone was disconnected, that's when they got really worried. And okay. This is what it seems like because of what I'm about to say Mm -hmm. next. So it's reported that her family just assumed that she left her grandma's house and went on a trip to the Yukon because she had been talking about it all year. So, you know, I think for some people you would think like, well, how come, you know, they weren't checking in on her enough, but you know, Shelly's an adult, right? You know, she's 25, I think you said. (laughs) And like people can... I don't know, go on trips. They probably know her better. Maybe sometimes they don't communicate all that often. So who knows? Exactly. So Shelly's sister describes her as very independent and caring. She's very trusting and selfless. She says she was creative and had a dream of becoming an interior designer. Initially, the family doesn't get a good response from the police. At first, they didn't take it seriously, Candace said. Candace seems to have jumped into action. She checked with friends, family, searched hospitals, and any public services she believed her sister might have used. I went beyond that. I had to do all my own research. Things I found out way before the cops even did. They would say, okay, we got to do this. And I would go and do it before them. As we continue this series in the future, I believe that this will be a recurring theme. Police not taking reports seriously and family members or friends jumping into action, desperate to find answers for their missing daughters, sisters, and mothers. Shelley, like many people, 
battled a drug and alcohol addiction, and this might have been a factor into why the police weren't as eager to solve or investigate her case. Which if that is the case, that's really unfortunate that it's, you know, like a blind judgment on those kinds of topics because they're they're pretty serious things that should be looked into no matter what kind of information comes from it. Definitely. I feel like it's hard because it's not... And I'm not, not taking like the police side mm-hmm. in this scenario, but if someone is, is known to have, you know, kind of gone missing, you know, if they, they've gone through drug and alcohol addiction, sometimes there'll be periods of time where um, your family doesn't hear from you because you're, you know, mm-hmm. doing things on your own and you're battling that addiction and it's mm-hmm. very difficult. And so I think it is kind of a common thing for police to kind of figure, well, she's probably just doing this trying, or that. Yeah, trying to keep her distance from you guys it's tough because it shouldn't everyone should every Mm -hmm. missing person reported should be treated the exact same yeah but i don't know if she had a criminal record or anything like that that might have played a factor in it you know just there there could have been a lot going on Mm -hmm. in this scenario but either way from candace's perspective the police didn't do as much as she believes they should have candace said we grew up in a home where emotions were masked with alcohol kids learn from what they see and i know our mother tried so hard i don't want to make excuses but I want to say we were like from the forgotten children era because of residential schools, because we grew up not being able to show emotions properly because our parents were products of the residential schools. This next part is a quote from the Vice article by Anya Zoledzioski. Hopefully I said that right. Intergenerational trauma, also known as generational or transgenerational trauma, happens when the stressful and traumatic experience faced by one's generation impacts the health and well-being and experiences of the next generation. This was said in the article by a university professor named Amy Bombay. This is something we touched a little bit on in our second episode, the intergenerational trauma and generational trauma of residential schools in Canada is something that is very apparent, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to recognize that and to kind of give a little definition so people are are aware of, of what Candace is kind of talking about. Before going missing, Shelly was three years sober and had gotten her son back from social services in 2012. She had dropped out of high school in 2010 and went back to complete her education. She had enrolled in college and she seemed happy. Unfortunately, she fell into a depression after her father father's death and turned back to drugs to cope. This caused her son to once again be removed from her care, which must have been very devastating for her. Yeah, and I'm sure it's even more devastating when you are getting back on the right track and going back to school, doing well, getting your son back, and then something in your life happens and it just kind of kicks you back to square one. It just makes it 10 times worse. Yeah, in this series that we'll cover, this is a pattern that you see. Mm-hmm. It's the generational trauma that's just so obvious. Yeah. Um, the addiction to drugs and alcohol and the involvement of social services. It, you can't escape it's really it. Hard. It's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard and it's really like out of these people's controls right yeah. like it's like like we said generational trauma it's not something that you can just flip one day and say mm-hmm. like no i'm gonna do this instead yeah. and that's not what no it's it's trauma from childhood that gets kind of perpetuated through mm-hmm. generations during the investigation the edmonton police service partnered with other law enforcement agencies due to the possibility that shelly had traveled to northern alberta or the territories it's reported that they have unconfirmed information that she went to the yukon with a First Nations male in a red pickup truck. And with the help of the Yukon Detachment and Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were able to circulate that information. So unconfirmed to me was a bit of a weird 
word to use in this article. But what I think that they're saying is that this might have been rumored Mm-hmm. And they were able to kind of confirm that it didn't happen or that they have no proof that it happened. In the summer of 2014, Shelley's family held a rally at Churchill Square in Edmonton to raise awareness for her disappearance. It was attended by 60 people who drummed and sang as they walked the perimeter of the square. Her family has created a Help Find Shelley Tannis Dene Facebook page to keep the case in public eye. At the present, the Missing Persons Unit of Edmonton Police Service is handling Shelley's disappearance. They have no reported sightings of her since she went missing and state that there's no indication that foul play was involved. The last contact Shelley's family had with the police was in December of 2014, when the investigators told Candace, Shelley's sister, that they've exhausted all tips. Candace would like to see a federal inquiry into Canada's missing and murdered Indigenous women, but more than that, she would like to see action that stops the problem. I feel like they should start focusing on the solution, she said. This information is from the Edmonton Police website. So, like we said, Shelly was 25 years at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 7 and 111 pounds. She's an Aboriginal female with brown eyes and brown hair. She has a scar on her right cheek and a piercing above her left upper lip. The EPS Missing Persons Unit investigating her disappearance has not yet been able to locate her. If you have any information on this individual or any other missing persons, please contact the Edmonton Police Services at 780-423-4567 or Edmonton Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or submit a tip online. So the information that we discussed a bit earlier saying that the last Candace heard from police was 2014. That's like at the present moment. So they have not reached out to her and we're in 2022. Yeah. So I guess it's just that they don't have any leads, right? Like there's no mm-hmm. no more information coming forward. No one has, has reported seeing her. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that they say that there's no signs of foul play necessarily, but I I struggle with that a little bit because people don't just drop off the face of the earth you you like you think of your phone your credit card like gas station cameras I don't know like they're it's very very hard to completely disappear well especially since like in especially in today's world you need a lot to live you need a lot to just live somewhat of a normal life so I think it's pretty crazy when when things like this happen where there's literally no information to be found yeah and like I just can't imagine having a loved one who Mm -hmm. just disappears and there's nothing there's no answers there's no closure there's nothing and this is the case for so many of these families and communities and I think that that would just be the most awful thing just to not have anything no comfort and you're not even able to bury your loved one it's yeah and with the whole like exhausting of all tips like you probably just feel helpless what's there to do now what's your next step yeah very helpless yeah and like I said family members are often you know stepping in and doing as much as they can but there's only so much you can do as like a civilian into like you don't Mm -hmm. have all the resources as the police does and they obviously have a lot more going on um more cases more missing people just like no regular day-to-day stuff and canada is is such a big country too that she could be anywhere realistically in the world but just canada itself would be really hard to you know, try to find information in all different provinces too. Yeah, so so that's the the case so far of Shelly Denae. And um, yeah, like we said, if you have any information, please contact the, the numbers that we, we listed above. It's very, very tragic. And we hope that this family gets some type of closure eventually. 
For our second case, we are covering the disappearance of Roxanne Mary Isidore. Roxanne was born October 14th, 1982. She was a member of the Driftpile Cree Nation, and she was a mother that lived in Edmonton with her boyfriend Cody. She moved to Edmonton in 2006. Roxanne left her two children with their great-grandmother temporarily so she could settle into her new home. Roxanne then called around the spring of 2007. Her grandmother told CBC, She just said, I'm on my way with my boyfriend. We are going to come and see the kids. I am going to come get them. Roxanne never made it to her grandmother Angeline's house. Months later, she gave birth to her third child. Unfortunately, he was taken from her days later at the Edmonton Hospital and put into the care of Alberta Social Services. So we don't have a ton of information as to, to why, but that must be so tragic. Like just giving birth to this child and that like mother and mm -hmm. baby connection and that baby being taken away from you. So I don't know if in between the time where she moved to Edmonton and now what we're discussing, there had been a lot going on in her life. I don't know if she was battling anything, any drugs or alcohol addiction, but those could be reasons as to why the baby would be taken away from her, but I have no it's speculation at this point because. Yeah, and I feel like with with what you just explained and the information you just gave us, there's a lot of like missing puzzle pieces right now. And mm -hmm. so there's just so much that's like running through my mind that could have happened. You know, she never made it to her grandmother's and then months later gave birth. So that's, yeah, I guess we'll just see see more information. Yeah, and that's the thing about these cases too is is they're they're very unreported. Like I think so far mm -hmm. we've covered cases that are kind of tied together with a bow, like at the end, like someone right. gets charged, convicted, goes to jail. It's like A, and B, C, D. Yeah, this is what happens. Exactly. Right. And that's what like our brains like, I think, when we listen to mm -hmm. true crime or or just anything, right? We like a beginning, a middle, and end mm -hmm. to a story. And there just isn't that here and there is missing information yeah because... and i think that just shows the importance of covering these types of cases because when they don't get coverage it's it's hard to get more information and, and get awareness and make sure that more information is found and and given for these types of cases so that just really shows the importance of them in september of 2007 roxanne's sister nicole saw her in edmonton roxanne assured nicole that everything was fine at this time, Angeline, Roxanne's grandmother, and her husband, Albert, kept raising her three children. After the third child was born, Angeline went to fight for custody and she was granted it. Roxanne had had a difficult childhood and Angeline shares with CBC that she had been molested as a child. Fortunately, Roxanne did get some help and counseling, but we all know that that type of trauma doesn't just go away. Roxanne had a history of attempted suicide and had also endured domestic violence with a long-term boyfriend. I'm unsure if this is referring to Cody, the man we mentioned at the top of the case. The family last saw Roxanne in 2006, and they last heard from her in 2007 from a phone call. Around 2006-2007, Edmonton police picked up Roxanne on charges related to prostitution. So just to be clear, sex work is real work, but there is a certain amount of risk that can be associated to this, so we thought it was somewhat relevant to the case in terms of the investigation. And it was relevant to mention. Until that time, according to her family, Roxanne had been calling weekly, or at least monthly. After that, the call stopped. Roxanne was reported missing to the Valley View RCMP in Alberta on September 24th, 2013. The following is from Angeline, Roxanne's grandmother. I'm 70. I've worried myself sick. She says the last two years have been extra hard because she battled cancer. She's in remission, but mentions there are other health concerns. I had a slight stroke. The doctor thinks anyway. 
The doctor is doing all kinds of tests again. So this is just so hard because you're seeing like the impact on family and like stress, anxiety and all of that Mm. related depression, maybe all of the stuff related to probably having a family member missing like this. Right. It's like a physical, mental. Yeah, it really beats your body down for sure. Yeah, it destroys people, destroys communities, families. It's I know we can't necessarily relate, but I, I I. I can see that it's so hard for her. The following is again from Angeline, Roxanne's grandmother. I have 34 great-grandchildren, 24 grandchildren, and five children. None of us are the same without Roxanne. This woman is such an all-star. Like, just, Absolutely. She's out there doing interviews, trying to get Roxanne's name out there while dealing with... She's in remission for cancer. She has 34 great-grandchildren, 24 grandchildren, and five children. Those numbers I, are wild and I could not imagine no she's an all-star like you said shout out um this next part is from the edmonton police website at the time of her disappearance roxanne was 25 years old in 2008 she was five foot 120 pounds she has been known to use the following names sunshine nicole or rolanda sunshine She's described as an Aboriginal female with long brown hair, possibly dyed red, brown eyes, false front teeth, with a tattoo of a large knife with a snake on the right shin below her knee. She also has a tattoo of a cross on her right middle finger. She has a two-inch burn scar on her left shoulder and an appendix scar on her abdomen. If you have any information on this individual or any other missing persons, please contact the Edmonton Police Service at 780-423-423. 4567 or Edmonton Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And that's the case of, of Roxanne Marie Isidore. For our third case, we are covering the murder of Justine Simone Cochran. Justine was 15 years old in 2011. She was a member of the Sunchild's First Nation and Cree community in Alberta. It's reported that she was creative and enjoyed crafts and spending time with her family. When she was young, she was taken to the care of child and family services. By three, she was a permanent ward of the system and by six, she had been sexually assaulted. It is a, this is a really heavy episode, and I, I like we've kind of been been talking about that um throughout the pauses it's just it's really hard to kind of swallow all this and that this is someone's life and that this happens and it's like almost tragedy after tragedy and the resilience of these communities is pretty incredible exactly and that's what i'm thinking as i'm hearing all this information it it makes me have a heavy heart but then it also just reminds me how those communities the families must be feeling if if i feel impacted just by reading some stories her mother had died in 1997 It's reported that it was either a murder or suicide. It's not sure, but there had been signs of rape. She spent a lot of time with her aunties and grandmothers. Even though she was a permanent ward of the system, it's obvious here that she had good connections with her extended family. Grace Gopher, Justine's grandmother, said, She was a very happy little girl. She used to like to do crafts and to powwow. She liked the culture. On March 4th, 2011, Justine's body was found on a gravel road on the Sunchild First Nations land. The autopsy would later confirm that she had been severely beaten and raped. It's reported she had been at a house party in the area the previous evening. People at the party reported seeing Justine consume alcohol. And this next part is reported, I just don't love it. It's reported that she was having some type of sexual relations with a man or an individual in a bedroom. It's not that I think this is a rumor or anything. I just, I just don't love the way this is painting Justine. And I just, I'm not sure. It could be relevant 
relevant. That's what I'm thinking. Is there really relevance with that encounter? And it's like for how if it was say like it was you're at a party and she's 15 so this is really hard but Mm -hmm. she's at a party and the door was closed and she was in a bedroom with a man and Mm -hmm. who knows what happens right Mm -hmm. nobody knows i'm assuming no one's in there with them right and maybe this man comes out and he's like oh yeah we just did this this and that and whether he's telling the truth whether he's lying whether there was consent involved i just the way this was reported i just didn't love it but i think it's important to, to mention but it's it's also from eyewitnesses and stuff at the mm-hmm. party so everyone's consuming alcohol and we know how how high school can be and how people can over exaggerate yeah exactly the rcmp believe the person responsible for her death died by suicide but justine's case remains open the man in question was at the house party the evening justine was murdered and articles of clothing he reportedly wore a gray sweatshirt a white baseball cap were found at the crime scene his name is out there but i don't feel we should mention it does not confirm that he committed this murder you know and this is a whole thing another thing too so we'll never get the answer as to whether this man was the one who actually murdered justine but um say this was a boyfriend we often especially in high school you know boy or boyfriend sweaters their ball mm-hmm. caps yeah you're heading home from a party for the night so you you know you grab his his sweater to stay warm or it's and maybe it's completely the opposite right maybe it's unconsensual sex she went home with him, he murdered her and dumped her on the side of the road. It's just, there are so many unanswered questions that it's hard to, we have to cover kind of all angles, I feel like, because mm-hmm. it's hard to just say it was one thing over another. Right. Depending on how much evidence there is, it's really all based on assumption of the information that you do have. You kind of just go with what you have. But like you said, it was not confirmed that he committed the murder and he wasn't convicted or anything like that. So it's hard. Justine's grandmother, Grace, said the following. I was left in the dark for over a year until I started calling around and talking to the investigators. I told them that I was the grandma and that I had every right to know what's going on in the case. Only then did the police start to contact Grace, and she said the last time she spoke to authorities about the case was around 2014. Justine's death is eerily all too similar to the death of her mother, Trudy. Trudy was killed on Mother's Day weekend in 1997, also on the Sunchild First Nations land. According to Grace, the grandmother, Trudy had been beaten and found with bruises all over her body hanging from a tree by her own jacket. Trudy's death was ruled a suicide by police, but Grace firmly believes her daughter did not kill herself. This is a whole other thing because I am sorry. I have not heard often in suicides that someone is beaten and reportedly raped and then has hung themselves from a tree by their own jacket. I don't know, honestly, that kind of, that just really leaves me speechless. And yeah. it's just, tra- again, like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. It's so awful. And this and I- poor grandma has watched mm-hmm. her daughter and her granddaughter, and I think we can say, be murdered and brutally assaulted. And she just is probably feeling so helpless it doesn't seem like she's getting a lot from the police and and maybe that's because they don't have anything right but it doesn't make it easier i'm sure the truth is i don't think there's more to it i think that indigenous women and girls are just so much more vulnerable and that's the connection that's it that's the connection Mm If you have any information regarding the murder of Justine Cochran, you are encouraged to contact the Rocky Mountain House RCMP at 403-845-2882. This week, we will be donating to the Native Women's Association of Canada. Here is from their website. 
The Native Women's Association of Canada is a national Indigenous organization representing the political voice of Indigenous women, girls, and gender diverse people in Canada, inclusive of First Nations, on and off reserve, status and non-status, disenfranchised, Métis, and Inuit. An aggregate of Indigenous women's organizations from across the country, NWAC was founded on the collective goal to enhance, promote, and foster the social, economic, cultural cultural and political well-being of Indigenous women within their respective communities and Canada societies. If you would like to contribute to Native Women's Association of Canada, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Oh.